So this is Sarah Spencer, reporter at the Altamont Enterprise, here with uh, Reverend Emily McNeil um, this week. She has just become the executive director at the Labor Religion Coalition of New York State um, and is living right now in Voorheesville. So welcome, Emily. Thank um, you. It's good so to be here. To, to begin with, um, the Labor Religion Coalition of New York State, what, what are the biggest issues that you're facing with that right now? I mean, is it minimum wage? Is it sort of more general economic equality issues, but what are sort of the big, big things that you're facing now? Yeah, well, our mission is to unite faith, labor, and community in a movement for social, economic, and racial justice in New York State. So it's a big uh, mission and a lot of different issues fall fall into that. Right now, um, one of our major fo- focuses is on healthcare, both trying to mobilize New Yorkers to uh, take action to protect healthcare for folks who have it now, but also to advocate for expanding it to all New Yorkers. And how specific do you get on, you know, issues like healthcare, for example? Because right now, I mean, it's sort of in flux, really, what you're going to be dealing with a year from now versus now for, you know, actual policy advocacy kind of things. So is it sort of a more broad appeal to people to kind of generally advocate to their, you know, elected officials for broader health care? Or is it sort of a more specific kind of? Yeah, it's both. So we... One of our values is to really talk about issues in terms of values. So whether that's people speaking from their faith values, which is a lot of the folks that we work with, but also people of no faith who, you know, care about democratic values or just, you know, values of, of caring for their community. So in terms of issues like healthcare, for us, the value is that everybody deserves access to healthcare, and so anything that improves and expands access to healthcare, we support. And anything that takes away healthcare, makes it harder for people to get, um, we oppose. So, part of our work is both, you know, talking about those values and and helping to to lift up the importance of healthcare as a justice issue and as a moral issue. Um, but specifically, so right now, we're encouraging people to reach out to Senators Schumer and Gillibrand and express their opposition to anything that would roll back healthcare expansion that we've seen over the last few years. Um, and also this past legislative session, we helped to educate folks about the New York Health Act and encourage them to talk to their representatives at the state level about the New York Health Act, which would bring universal healthcare to New York State. Okay. And I think you touched on this a little bit in your last answer, but where where does or where do religion and labor really intersect? I mean, they obviously share, you know, some, you know, poverty, you know, generally sort of poverty related issues, but where where do those two things really intersect for you and and for the organization? Yeah, so in American history there's been a lot a long history of the intersection of faith organizations and labor organizations working together around the shared values that we have, which a lot of times is about um, workers' rights and worker justice, especially for the most vulnerable communities. And that, to me, and I think for really all faith traditions, there's a there's a call to be particularly concerned about the poorest and the most vulnerable. Um, so, you know, historically that's been um, like the child labor, on child labor, uh, people of faith were very concerned about that, um, establishing, you know, a minimum wage at all. Um, and today it's, it's similar wherever, um, 
workers are being exploited so that the dignity of their labor is not respected. Um, that, from our perspective, is a moral issue and a, an issue of faith. Uh, so it's it's really around issues of, of justice and especially justice for, for folks who are particularly marginalized in our economy. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what what does the work of your organization sort of look like? I mean, do you work with pastors and ministers in various churches to sort of include labor-related things in in their work? Or is it sort of a more, you know, dealing with church communities? Or tell, tell me a little mm-hmm. bit just about sort of what, what it looks like, the, the work that you do, yeah. how it sort of manifests. How I talk about it is in sort of two, two categories. And one is working with coalitions of other groups to support particular campaigns. And our role in those coalitions is to help the folks in our network, many of whom are people of faith, whether that's clergy or just lay people and of many different faiths, to know how they can be engaged. So, for example, that could be, you know, telling people that to call their representative or we'll have like a vigil, for example, at the state capitol about a particular issue and lift up why people of faith care about this issue. Um, and that kind of work is done with other groups. Um, so things like healthcare, um, like we're involved in a campaign right now about getting uh, access to driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. Um, we always are acting That's a pretty around. political issue there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some, there's definitely um, opposition to it. But when you, when you talk with particularly folks who work directly with undocumented immigrants mm. and immigrants themselves, it's a really big issue, um, especially for folks like farm workers who are very isolated and have to get around. And if they can't get access to a license, there's no legal safe way for them to do it. Yeah. And it's really puts not only them at risk, but other folks on the road and really all of us at risk. To So do you often find that just by the nature of what you're advocating for, you often get into sort of politically hot issues like healthcare or immigration status kind of issues. I mean, do you often find that you're dealing with, you know, sort of culturally charged? Yeah, issues? I mean, in in some ways, I guess when there's an issue that seems that it needs advocacy, usually that's because there's another side to it. That's, that's sort true, of, isn't it? you yeah. know, making the the opposite argument. Um so, you know, we're we, as I said before, really want to focus on on values rather than partisanship. Um, so, you know, for us, it comes down to, uh, as uh, Reverend Barber, who's a, a national leader that um, that is is uh, somebody who I look up to a lot, says it's not about right or left; it's about right or wrong, um, and that certainly does take us into to controversy, but. It's about living out the values of our faith. Mm-hmm. And so what about you? You grew up like Rochester area, went to yeah. Ithaca for journalism, and then ended up at Union Seminary. Yes. So how, exactly. how did your path take you to being an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ? So I grew up um, in the church. My dad's a United Methodist pastor. Um, and so growing up, my faith was really important to me. Uh, and for me, the questions of, of justice and social justice were always, that was always sort of the main lesson that I took from my faith. And I was always really interested in 
um, in being in being a Christian by being involved in you know advocacy and justice work in the world. Uh, and so, how much of your father's work shaped your work now? I mean, what kind of effect did that? Are you modeling after him, or are you? doing the opposite of that. I mean, how? <laughs> Maybe a mixture does, of both. Yeah. I mean, I definitely both, um, the, the church I, that was kind of most formative in my life uh, in Fairport outside of Rochester, my dad was a co-pastor with another um, pastor there. And both of them really shaped like my theology. Um, and they preached a gospel that was about inclusion and, um, you know, reconciliation and bring people together and um, so that was that was the faith that I was raised with, um, but I always felt um, really wanted to be involved in kind of the activist advocacy side of things, um, especially why, young as a younger person. And why is that? Where do you think that comes from for you? I, that's a great question. <laughs> I sort of, I feel like I've always had that streak in me. Um, and like I, as a, as a kid, I was a big baseball fan and wanted to be a major league pitcher when I was a young Who's child. Who's your team? The Toronto Blue Jays, oddly enough. <laughs> I was a Blue Jays fan because my Little League team was the Blue Jays. Oh, no so way. I, yeah, that's the only thing. But yes, as a kid, I too. That's I can awesome. really, how, how did you become a Blue Jays fan? It's kind of a long story, but for uh, like five years, my family lived in Western Pennsylvania when I was really young, and we were Pirates fans. And then uh, the Braves beat the Pirates in the playoffs, and then the Blue Jays played the Braves. We rooted for the Blue Jays against the Braves. And then we ended up liking the Blue Jays more than the Braves. <laughs> and it stuck around. But anyway, so I, as like a seven-year-old, I wrote a letter to President Clinton asking him to allow women to play Major League Baseball because I thought he could help with this. But so there is always, and I, as far as I know, I, you know, that was something I came up with on my own. And I have a twin sister who, and both of us were kind of had this, you know, Oh. Uh, we wanted to right every wrong that we, that we saw. And so what does she do? She's uh, finishing up a PhD in political theory. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so you both kind of had this in you, this idea of yeah. fixing the problems in the world. Yeah. And so did, did Clinton ever write you back? Did I got you, like did, a form letter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so, like, at what point did you kind of realize, like, so what, what did that teach you? I mean, did you realize that, like, not everything can be fixed? Or what, what did that show you in, in recognizing that maybe you couldn't um, be well, a think, major league pitcher? Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, then I decided I wanted to be a basketball player. But uh, my... Uh, I just was not uh, not talented enough for <laughs> those dreams. <laughs> but I think I don't think I was uh, too discouraged by the the Clinton thing. More my my political strategy needed to be more savvy since he didn't actually have the ability to change Major League Baseball. But I think I mean seriously through uh, kind of just through getting to know um like organizers and and activists who i really 
respected. Um, I think I just still, even, you know, even seeing a lot of failed campaigns or a lot of what seems to be like steps backwards, I still really believe that there are, that um, people have the power to make significant change and that we have the responsibility to to do our best. Um, and I feel like I've been lucky to get to know mentors who have kind of instilled that in me. How do you maintain that? I mean, coming off the last elections is, you know, a lot of, a lot of the issues that were implicated um, in that election are, I think, would be, you know, considered a step back for, for labor and for, you know, progressive sorts of, you know, religion. Yeah. Um, so how do you maintain this sense that things can move forward um, in the face of maybe evidence otherwise? Yeah, well, it certainly feels like we've taken some steps backward. Uh, but I also feel like we're at, and we, this is a moment of opportunity where people are able to come together in a new way. Um, and I'm really excited actually about the possibilities. I think not just, I think whichever way the presidential election had gone, um, there were a lot of really positive things happening, but I think there's new energy behind it. Um, and so one of the things that I'm really excited about is an effort at the national scale um, called the Poor People's Campaign, um, which a number of groups led by the Cairo Center down in New York City have been working on for a really long time. But uh, it's kind of gains momentum with Reverend William Barber, who's well-known in, in some circles nationally, has just taken a leader on a leadership role there. But the idea is that is to, to pick up where Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign left off in 1968. And they think, and I agree, that, that King was right when he thought that if you could bring together folks who are poor and marginalized across the country across the differences of race and geography and issue that divide us, that that can be a powerful force that really changes the country. Um, and I think it's, it's going to happen. It's happening. There's uh, some really amazing organizations coming together at the, at the national level. And here in New York State, what we're focusing on this summer is holding what we're calling a Truth Commission on Poverty in New York State. The yeah, idea, I, I saw that. I thought that was interesting. If you could just tell us a little bit about what that is and what you've been finding. Yeah. It. So <clears throat> what we're doing is holding three public events in different regions of the state. So we held one in Cuba, New York, which I didn't know there was a Cuba, New York, but there is. It's down in Allegheny County on the west or southwestern part of the state. Um, we held that on June 1st. There's going to be one in this area in Schenectady, July 13th, and then another down on Long Island on September 12th. And at each of these events, we're having folks really just share their stories and talk about how their communities are being affected um, by economic inequality and poverty and racism and other injustices. Uh, so that's directly impacted people speaking about their lives. And then we have some folks who are policy experts or advocates or other like direct service providers talking about what they see. And so ultimately, I mean, what what is the vision for 
what this will bring or what what it will come to. I mean, what are you hoping it's going to end with? Yeah, well, I think a lot of data exists about what poverty looks like in New York State, and we know it's bad. (laughs) But we really believe that there's a power in telling stories and hearing people's stories, and also in recognizing how even though a place like Cuba, which is really rural, and a place like Long Island, which is really suburban, are so different, there's also a lot of things that resonate across those divides. And so our hope is that people will hear how different issues are connected, like how a single mom not being able to earn a livable wage is connected to her having having trouble accessing enough food and have living in a food desert that those there are things that are connected um issues in people's lives and also that there are these connections across different kinds of communities Mm. um so the goal is really to help bring these stories to light and but more importantly try to connect the folks who are telling them to each other so we're um we're doing a statewide gathering in october in Binghamton, uh, where we're hoping to bring as many people as possible who have been part of these events together. Um, Reverend Barber and leaders from the Poor People's Campaign will be there. Um, And we see this as a first step to build relationships and kind of a common understanding that then can help us take steps, the next step in terms of what do we want New York City to look like and how can we get there? Mm -hmm. And so... You always seem to have this thread through your life on, you know, advocacy and social justice issues. What about the religion? I mean, did you always know that you wanted to be a pastor or when when did that sort of develop for you? No, I did not really consider being a pastor growing up. Um, But really, the more I um, thought about doing advocacy and activism work for a while I thought I wanted to go into politics I studied journalism um but it just became clear and clear to me how central my faith is to like why I want to do this work um and I just felt like I wanted to be able to combine those things and talk about the real reasons which I care why I care about these things which is because I believe that my faith calls me to work on them um and I want to be able to, to talk about that and talk about how I interpret the gospel and, um, and bring that to my work. So, so as I kind of came to understand that about myself, I decided to go to seminary um, and wasn't really sure how this would all come together. I did uh, work as a pastor for a couple of years um, and really do value that work as well. Yeah. Um, but I feel like where I am now has, is, is a really, feels right. And um, did you ever struggle to like reconcile, you know, identifying on the LGBTQ spectrum? Did you ever have questions or trouble coming to terms with like being wholly a part of, you know, a broader religion that, you know, contains pockets of, you know, great bigotry and, you know, has historically been, um, you know, not not a partner with the LGBT community. I mean, how how did you come to terms with that? And was it ever, you know, sort of a struggle for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and growing up, like I said, I was in a pretty progressive church, but not super progressive. And basically, just nobody talked about 
um, homosexuality or gender identity or anything in church growing up Mm -hmm. because I think there are, you know, folks on either side in my congregation. So I definitely, I didn't hear like overtly negative things about being gay, but I definitely didn't hear positive things about it either. So it was, I definitely, you know, struggled just internally to come out to myself and then to other folks because it didn't, well, it wasn't like demonized. I didn't think it was going to be celebrated or really people were going to be too happy about it. So that was kind of a, a struggle in itself. But when I did come out, um, I was received very warmly. Um, and that was overwhelmingly a really positive experience. But then, um, wanting to go into ministry became another huge barrier because the United Methodist Church does not ordain openly gay people. Um, At least the rules are against it. People do, you know, people are resisting the rules. Um, So that was a struggle, and that's that's why um, my partner and I moved out to Washington after seminary because that is a more progressive part of the country in the United Methodist Church, the um, conference here in New York State just very flatly said they would not consider me um so so can you tell us a little bit about just what that felt like for you I mean what what it was like to be faced with a flat no um yeah it was very difficult and I was very angry about it um and I felt it was because the church was such a positive supportive presence for me through my life, it was kind of a slap in the face. So even though the congregation I grew up in was very supportive of me for the, you know, the governing body to just be like, sorry, that was very frustrating to me. Um, And also I was frustrated by kind of like moderate folks who like personally didn't agree with the rules, but like wouldn't, wouldn't speak out about them and kind of would say, oh, it's too bad, but that's the way it is. Right. Um, So you moved to Washington, an area where you could be ordained and Mm -hmm. worked as a pastor there. And how, I mean, so going going through this yourself, how did it kind of inform your ministry? I mean... Yeah, I think, I mean, I've always had issues of justice and kind of standing up for the oppressed have always just resonated with me. Um, but I definitely experience it in a different way, feeling like personally the target of that kind of, uh, treatment. And I think in some ways, uh, it has just sort of (laughs) confirmed for me that there is, that institutions are um, are flawed, even the institutions with the best intentions, um, and but that that uh, not to internalize that um, those messages that to kind of assume that the folks who are being excluded. Um, probably have some wisdom to offer um, and to kind of not to be, I guess I want to say skeptical of the institutional line. 
um, especially when it comes to to telling people that they're wrong or, or excluding people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being somebody who has, you know, as your major sort of identity in life, you know, being an advocate for people who are being discriminated against, did you feel like in that situation, there should be people there standing up for you? Like, you know, these people in, you know, the church who say, I, you know, I don't agree with this, but it's the way it is. I mean, mm-hmm. was it seems like it's sort of ironic. Somebody who has, <laughs> has you know, fought, fought for other people um, than to be faced with such clear discrimination. Um, I mean. Yeah, and there definitely were and are. Um, so it was also like there, there were incredible um, leaders, both queer and straight in the United Methodist Church who fight so hard. Um, and I have so much admiration for them. Um, but there definitely are folks who kind of, who I would like to see use their power to be better advocates. Um, and for me, it just kind of got to the point where I wasn't, it wasn't worth it to me to stay in that denomination anymore and deal with the, the drama. Um, and partly because so much of the rest of the world has moved so far beyond the United Methodist Church in this way. Um, and while I like certainly feel like it's vital to advocate for the queer community for trans rights, there's still so far to go. It didn't feel like my, I didn't feel called to stay and fight this issue in the United Methodist Church. I want to put my energy into other struggles. Um, And so I decided to leave and and go to the United Church of Christ, which is open and welcoming and has been for decades. And this is a much more comfortable place. Yeah. Do LGBTQ issues come up in relation to labor advocacy? I mean, I don't know if bathroom laws um, or, you know, spousal health care rights come up in, you know, labor related issues. I mean, does that have any bearing on how you handle those, um, you know, aspects of, of labor advocacy? Yeah, it hasn't really come up since I've been at Labor Religion Coalition. Um, it's certainly, there certainly are those intersections. Um, I think especially when it comes to like anti-discrimination things, um, obviously we've made a lot of steps forward so that, you know, access to benefits for spouses and things like that is, you know, now available um, in New York State. So, uh yeah, it hasn't really recently, but there definitely are those those intersections, I think, especially around access to benefits and um, anti-discrimination. Mm-hmm. And what about just nationally? I mean, so this is a statewide coalition. Are there similar coalitions in other states that you work with? Or are you, you know, is, is the um, Labor Religion Coalition of New York State sort of a on its own kind of a thing? Yeah, we're uh, an affiliate of Interfaith Worker Justice, which is based out of Chicago um, and has a number of groups around the country, both worker centers and groups that kind of like us work with the intersection between faith and labor. Um, And then also this Poor People's Campaign I mentioned um, is a network across the country. Um, And 
certainly for the latter, talking about the intersection of all these different issues is one of the main things um, that, you know, we have to recognize that um, marginalizing any one part of the population, like trans people or queer people, is impacts the ability to marginalize any other group and that we all have to stick up for each other. Yeah. And this was something that occurred to me actually when we were talking about your father being a pastor and we got onto other things. Do you think your father is proud of you? I mean, is he, is he proud that you, you're now following his steps? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he was pretty disheartened (laughs) that I had to leave the Methodist church. I think it's kind of colored his his own relationship to the denomination in some ways. Um, and I think there's some ways that he, uh, like if he was, was not thrilled that I took that path, it was because it wasn't an easy, he knew it wasn't going to be an easy path mm-hmm. to go, particularly through the Methodist church. Um, so that has been, you know, that's the challenge of it. But, but. Yeah, I think he's he's wouldn't have imagined that I was going to follow in those steps, but I think is is happy that I have. Why do you think why was it a surprise? Well, I just like especially growing up didn't really ever talk about being a pastor. It kind of came along later. Yeah. Yeah, I was interested to see that you were a journalism major. Did you want to be a journalist or that was just sort of an interesting, you liked writing or? Oh, that was the plan. I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but um, love writing. And to me, it was, you know, it's a way to tell the truth, Um, Mm -hmm. which in some ways overlaps with, with the work that I do now, which is about trying to tell the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything I didn't ask about that I should have that you think is um, important or? can't really think of anything. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This was really great. It was nice talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun.